There's a lot of speculation about how we'll be working and getting paid in the future. Think 2040 and beyond. While all those dystopian TV shows and movies might help you to imagine what it could be like, we're really getting glimpses of the future in our daily lives. This is thanks to our increased reliance on automation and, of course, the more recent surge in our use of generative artificial intelligence. One recent report on the future of work has found that traditional salaries will no longer exist. That's right, forget the frustration of waiting for your monthly salary transfer. Instead, employees can look forward to real-time payments and even instant bonuses for a job well done. But what else is in store for workers in the future? Welcome to Pocketful of Dirhams. I'm Felicity Glover, the personal finance editor at The National. Joining me today is Tracy Follows, a UK-based futurist who's here to discuss her latest research on the future of work. But before we begin, don't forget to subscribe to Pocketful of Dirhams on your favourite podcasting app. Welcome to Pocketful of Dirhams, Tracy. Oh, thanks for having me. Lovely to uh, meet you. Thank you. So naturally, I asked ChatGPT to weigh in on some questions for our chat today on the future of work, which is based around recent studies that you've been involved in. So here's one of them. How do you foresee automation and AI shaping the job market in the next few decades? And what types of jobs will we be working? Honestly, if I knew the detailed answer to that, imagine how well off I'd be, (laughs) how rich I'd be. Um, um, So, yeah, what's interesting about this automation and AI is that it's such a vast expanse of possibilities. I think we can think about the next 20 years as sort of this decade stretching out through the 2020s is probably to do with AI and AI assistance and particularly in sort of digital media and communications. And we've seen a lot of that happening over the last 12 to 18 months as the large language models like Bard and Claude and Perplexity. And obviously we've got um, new ones, inflection, new ones coming. But this kind of um, personal AI assistance large language models, the the stuff that's really going to disrupt our communications and our media. And I guess I see that for the rest of this decade being the main disruptive vector. But as you get into the next decade, the 2030s, I think that's where automation really starts to take over. And we're really thinking about an autonomous economy then. So autonomous services, autonomous factories, all this sort of stuff. And that's slightly more difficult to predict because we're not yet clear about the amount of subjects, areas, task skills that automation might take over. We'll get a a better feel for that as we move through this decade. But I would say that is probably how it shapes up. And then, of course, the decade after is probably more about quantum, which will disrupt things all over again. So when we say, sorry, uh, a kind of long answer, but when we say AI and automation, I do see them as as fairly different things shaping up differently across the next two decades. And so if you think about the types of jobs we'll be doing, we're still doing this decade lots of jobs in communication and information. But as we move into the following decade, we have to think very we have to think very deeply about what will humans be doing in an autonomous world. Do you think that we're already getting an insight into that already? If you look at Japan, for example, and those kind of cult cafes where they've got robots serving meals to to diners and even for example Elon Musk this morning 
released some video of one of his robots doing one of the world's most boring tasks, which I can't actually remember what it was. Mm -hmm. It's so boring. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But are these the sorts of things that we can expect to be mainstream um, by the 2030s, 2040s? Yeah, definitely we're going to have, I mean, as you know, when everybody knows we've got huge amounts of automation in big factories and, and construction and things like that already. I'm not entirely sure how much robotics and automation we really want in customer facing scenarios. So it's interesting you mentioned Japan, things like the Hena Hotel, the strange hotel that was a prototype and they envisaged a lot more hotels coming along after, but it would be 90 to 100 percent staffed by robots obviously there were a huge amount of problems actually (laughs) and it really wasn't that conducive to a a hospitable experience it was entertaining and engaging and maybe kind of as its name suggests, a bit strange, a bit of an odd and interesting one-off experience, but do you really want to go back there? So I think we're going to find out what humans really want and where they really want robots or automation to to work. And my guess is it's much, much more behind the scenes as we move further into the future, which allows us to sort of surface some of our more human qualities and value those more. It's not to say that AI can't have a role in a customer-facing, human-to-human conversation or communication, it, it can. I've always thought that AI would be able to do its own creativity in media, and I said this 10 years ago, because I'd been watching the studies on robots and watching how robots develop social behaviour. But I think we will find that humans want more human-to-human contact in new and different ways. I think one thing that will be very interesting is the kind of perspectives that AI gives us that we don't really have access to at the minute. So it's a bit like an unknown or maybe an unknown, known unknown. (laughs) I don't know. One of those. In that um, if you listen to what Eric Schmidt was saying about the way in which we'll use AI assistance, they're going to be like another dimension. They're going to have access to another dimension. They're going to give us another perspective. So they'll be able to access data, access kind of like an like an extra sense, if you like. And so the data that comes back will give us a new perspective on the world as we blend it with our own traditional five senses. And I think because we don't know what that's going to feel like or how that's going to be experienced yet, that extra dimension that we're going to have access to through AI assistance, it's difficult to say where that's going to go because I think it's going to open up a whole new world that we don't, we just can't, we can't quite see around that corner right now. Mm, no, absolutely. It's really hard to imagine, if I'm honest. But what about emerging sectors of the future? Will there be some new types of jobs that will be working, say, in the 2030s, 2040s? I mean, one that I've been talking about, which you want to talk about dull and boring, this really is dull and boring to people. So it's hard for them to get too excited about this, but it's a safety sector. I think when any new technologies come along, we saw it with the car, when it replaced horses, over time, you develop lots of new health and safety regulations, lots of new trust and safety, like policies, initiatives. And I think that's probably what's going to happen. And I imagine with all of the robotics and sort of automation that's coming into factories and services and products and you know, anything. Imagine people are 3D printing stuff at home. What is the safety around that? So I think there's going to be a whole new sector of safety, if you like. And safetyism is a very, very big trend at the moment anyway, and it ha- has been for a little while, and it's I don't think it's peaked yet. So I think we've, we're going to see that kind of safetyism. And out of that, 
we'll probably find a whole new sector around training for safety, which happens in virtual reality and in very immersive simulated environments, all those sorts of things. And I think that's one of the really big areas, but it's a bit like identity or security. When you start to talk to people like that, you you see their eyes glaze over. (laughs) Right, yeah, no, absolutely. But I also imagine you just mentioned the metaverse And there have been some issues raised over the past few months about bullying or virtual attacks in in the metaverse, for example. Would that also be something that would be that would come under safetyism? Yeah, I mean, because obviously safety from the environment, there's safety from the tools you're using or the platforms you run, and there's safety from other people, if you like. I think there'll be a whole new set of codes, behavioural codes, and obviously there'll be safety around communications and messaging, which we're already seeing, obviously, with online home bills and things like that. It's interesting about you say that about the metaverse, because one of the things I've always expected to see is a little less antagonism, if you like, and dangers, if you like, from in the metaverse than we have currently with social media. Because at the moment with social media, we don't we can't really represent our own identity properly. It's just mostly it's just text based. Obviously, we have some video now and there's some other media vectors emerging like spaces and we have got bit audio but I think um, in the metaverse you'll have haptics you'll be able to completely represent or represent yourself in that space and therefore you won't feel so what's the word defensive about your identity and you won't need to overcompensate for it by being antagonistic or aggressive or abusive so I actually think within the metaverse, if one's identity can be much more fully, wholly realised and experimented with and explored, if you like, then we should see a lot less of the kind of friction than we've seen with like social media over the last sort of five or six years. Mm, I hope so. I think one thing that everybody wants to know, or not perhaps not everybody, but many people would want to know is, will we see the end of office-based jobs in the future? No, I don't think so. I think offices will be repurposed. I think a lot of people have been saying that, and I do see that offices will be repurposed. It depends what timescale we're we're looking at this. I think this decade, obviously, there's going to be a tug of war between people wanting to work from wherever they like and companies in some respects and in some sectors wanting to get employees back into the same location. I think what we'll probably find is there'll be a dip in innovation because when people aren't around each other physically, then they're not sparking ideas and they're not collaborating in the same way. You can collaborate remotely, of course you can, but it's different and there are some restrictions and limitations around it. I think what needs to happen really is that these virtual spaces where one can feel like one is together with other people, even though you're in a digital environment, those really need to um, come onto the market first and those need to be accessible before we can really work remotely if you like so you're in this liminal weird space where you're not physically together but you are virtually together and I think those are really they could work perfectly well but they're not here yet so we've got a bit of a vacuum where everybody feels the need to work remotely work wherever they want to but actually is it that conducive to productivity And it's very fashionable to think that productivity doesn't matter anymore. And we've got emerging generations who are more interested in whether their workplace or space is ethical than whether it's productive. But at some point, productivity has to come back and we have to (laughs) fall in love again with productivity (laughs) of some description because otherwise we're not going to progress. So I think 
offices at the minute will take on, there'll be experiments, people will use them for training, access to social events, um, all these sorts of things. But at some point, people will have to come back to a space. Now, in the far future, that's going to be a virtual space. In the near future, people are going to have to come back to a physical space, probably a little more than they are at the minute. I think just to say, this is a typical example of this liminal, weird, tug-of-war kind of space that we're in at the minute. Two big trends, the one being decentralization, where everything is being decentralized. Power is shifting from institutions to individuals, empowering those individuals and working from home or working from anywhere that they would prefer to work from is a great example of that. It's just one example. But of course, every trend has a counter trend. And we've got the recentralization trend, which is the forces that are trying to bring back control to the center uh, to the locus of control that, that is the sort of authority in the centre. And what we're feeling is the, the tug of war between those. And and that's pretty much why most people are feeling that we're in, a, we're in this time of kind of movement without progress, because we're not really sure which of those, I would say decentralisation will win out as a trend over the long term. But over the near term, we're still in that battle. Mm, yeah. And perhaps companies also recognizing perhaps the future as well and and that what is productivity what do they want in terms of productivity what is productivity what is yeah. leadership of a remote workforce or, or or a workforce if you like who can gather uh, virtually what is leadership of a workforce that are going to be paid by the hour not every month in their pay packet as a salary these are all big questions that is going to take us the rest of this decade to work out yeah, no, absolutely. It's really interesting. I think we could talk about this for hours, I think. Can I also ask as well, you've been involved in quite a lot of other studies, um, particularly recently. What other trends do you see for the future of work, for the future of jobs, our workplace? I know it's quite broad, this question, mm-hmm. but um, has anything stood out to you? The way I talk about work is work as network. That's to, to play into the decentralized trend that I was just explaining there, I see work as network. That's the way I did, I did quite a big study for Women's Business Council, and which taps into the cabinet office here. And it was on the future of work for women. But actually, what I discovered, it was a few years ago now, but what I discovered was that this decentralization is breaking down these traditional barriers. And obviously, people are working remotely, but they're also making better use of their own networks. And that's how we need to think of work. Each of us is taking on a more entrepreneurial mindset, I think, and leaning less on the institution or the organization. So for example, if you think about something I work in, futures and strategic foresight, I'm getting more and more interested in in teaching individuals the tools and capabilities of foresight because I already can see that it's going to be the individuals who need those capabilities personally not just the organization that needs it generally and so I see this kind of breaking down so that we all become these individual nodes in the network and and that means we need to become more resilient each of us we probably need to be much more cognizant and vigilant about the kinds of skills we're going to need and we're constantly upskilling and reskilling and we do that anyway really in a funny sort of way with all these new sort of productivity apps and things that come around in yet another platform look at the way everybody has has leapt onto chat gpt so that's a new kind of skill that we're starting to learn which is how to collaborate with a 
with an artificial intelligence. Nobody's taught us to do that, really. We're just kind of finding our own way and exploring. So I think the big thing is that education that feeds into work is going to change. So right now we've got at the minute lots of sort of digital twin metaversities starting up. And those are fascinating because it means anyone who's anywhere can attend this university. And actually, you can start to learn new subjects. So, for example, if you're doing something really dangerous, like you're, I don't know, I don't know why you want to do this, but if you want to be involved in a nuclear reactor and you're doing some sort of civil engineering in that, you can go right inside the nuclear reactor if you're in a virtual training Mm -hmm. uh, exercise, which you can't do that in the physical world. Or if you're working with jewellery or some very precious materials, again, you can do that virtually. If you are in the education sector and you want to work, let's say in the future, there is, I very much believe in 10 to 20 years, we'll be doing interplanetary studies, interstellar studies. And so how are you going to learn that? Well, you'll be able to learn it through virtual reality because you can't actually physically go there to learn it. And so I think once these educational uh, routes and new worlds of education and learning open up, which are to do with the metaverse and virtual reality, but also are assisted through AI so that you can personally learn at your own pace. I think that's going to open up a whole new set of skills to people. And then that will open up completely new types of jobs. Because at the moment, you've got a kind of educational establishment, which is very sort of, it's like an indu- it's like a factory. It's the industrial model where everybody mm-hmm. learns the same thing at the same pace. Once that is disrupted, then people can learn what they want to learn to their full potential and actually create the kinds of jobs that they want to do. So I think there should be a flourishing and a blossoming of new types of jobs that we can't even imagine because we don't know what kind of skills people will be able to access in these new modes of learning. Mm, Absolutely. And I think one thing about education that it's always, it's been very static for hundreds of years sitting, for example, in a classroom or in a lecture hall desks, whiteboards now. I think it's just you're now getting online schools and online universities, as you say. So that's... Yeah, it's been completely disintermediated, like retail, like the workspaces. The education will be one of the last to be disintermediated, split up and decentralised, distributed, if you like. So everything Mm. that is decentralised feels much more distributed. And then when it's distributed, it's not static, as you say. It has the propensity to be much more dynamic. Mm. And also more inclusive. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it should be. Yes. Access should be. That's one of the things about the decentralization, the networked economy or society, if you like, which is that it's permissionless. There shouldn't be an authority at the center of everything admitting you if they feel that you warrant permission to enter. You should, anybody should be able to participate and anybody can, unless you put in new barriers, (laughs) new types of barriers, which can happen in a kind of consensus driven network, of course. But theoretically, yeah, it's much more permissionless. I was also particularly interested in how we will be paid in the future. One of the studies that you're involved in suggested that our monthly pay packets won't exist anymore and will be paid through micropayments and crypto. Is this a real possibility, getting paid in real time rather than waiting until the end of the month? 
yeah, I don't see why not. We might be 20 years off that, but some people will still get a salary, but it will reduce drastically. Because why should somebody who is, let's say, a deskless work or somebody working out in like hospitality or something really consumer facing, why should they uh, wait a month to be paid? Maybe they are paid weekly at the minute, but let's say, for example, you're a waitress or you're um, working in the hotel uh, industry and hospitality and you have a, a really satisfied customer who's very loyal and very happy. What, why shouldn't you receive like a bonus payment in that moment, a kind of commission for doing your job particularly well or getting a great recommendation or rating or review or something? And that could happen through digital wallets, credentials and crypto. And the AI would be able to kind of log that and trigger uh, a micro payment. Already people obviously are getting paid micropayments for tasks that are done or for working on half hour little projects or whatever. And we've seen that across new and interesting platforms that, uh, that have been, been set up. Those are kind of a bit experimental, but I think you should see this go mainstream over the next 20 years. And why shouldn't people be paid in the moment that they have delivered whatever it is they need to deliver to do their job? That's how we see some of the productivity come back into the economy and into the idea of work that actually people can be more productive when they're paid in the instant moment that they deliver. Yeah, it's definitely more of an incentive, I think. That's the word. <laughs> so finally, should we be optimistic or worried about the future of work? Well, as with most things, both. Um, I always call myself an anxious optimist because I'm optimistic about the future, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be vigilant about it. Because in order to be optimistic, we have to be aware of, of things and we have to constantly be turning them over in our mind and working out what the implications are. Um There'll always be winners and losers, and obviously that who the winners are and who the losers are is going to change slightly. I think one of the things we should be quite worried about is I saw an IMF study that said, well, I can't remember the exact stats, but obviously women and women's jobs are more precarious when it comes to automation. So this is one of the things that's very interesting because what we have found is that with the work from home and remote working or hybrid working, for the most part, a lot of women have found it more liberating and freeing because they're able to do other tasks and perform other roles in and amongst their sort of daily work. And so a lot of them have been able to balance things better than having to go to the office every single day and commute. But we might find with the rise of automation that actually that gets cancelled out and that some of women's jobs or traditional jobs, let's say, are more precarious to automation. If you think about some of these jobs like in retail, in, in manufacturing. So I think there's a few studies pointing towards the same thing there. So there will be some new inequalities that grow out. But I think overall, I haven't really seen the proof points through history that we're all going to be made redundant and all going to be out of jobs because every time a new technology has come along, it has fundamentally created more peripheral industries and organisations and companies and another economy kind of grows up around it. I take the point that artificial intelligence is going to do a lot of the jobs of our cognition, not just the jobs that we're physically able to do. So it's going to substitute some of our mental capacities. But even if you think about tools like search, when search came uh, along, it was using a lot of our memories. It was helping us with cognition then. And uh, people didn't lose jobs because of search particularly 
or they found new jobs or there were new peripheral entrepreneurial opportunities that sprung up around around that new industry. I think we'll see big shifts, obviously. There'll be new winners and new losers. It won't be like the past. But I think I'm not expecting the apocalyptic sort of visions of 80% of the population being out of a job. Yeah, and I think we should probably stop watching all of those dystopian movies about the future. I think, Well, that's a very interesting point, actually, Felicity, because we have been fed for a good 10 years, probably more now, very um, dystopian, singular visions of the future. And the future is there for us to co-create. I always say the future is plural. And it is. We're breeding a generation who is pretty nihilistic, who don't want to have children, who don't look forward to their future because older generations have told them that it's catastrophic, apocalyptic, and they should be anxious about it because yeah, they've only got 12 years left or the world is boiling. And these are terrible things to tell young people, to rob them of their potential and their ability to think about limitless possibilities and create those sorts of futures. So we do need to get away from this dystopian forecast, which is very singular, and find a way to reopen up young people's imaginations about the future that they can create and co-create and that can be anything they want it to be because it's they are empowered to create the future today. And I do think that's it is a bit of a bugbear of mine. I do find it really quite evil to do to an up-and-coming generation who have their whole lives ahead of them. How dare we tell them they've only got the like the planet's only got 12 years left. And that has bred, as I say, a very nihilistic sort of attitude. And that needs to be reversed as soon as possible. Because up-and-coming generations are going to create the future that we all live in. And so um, we want them to be as optimistic and positive and um, active about that as, as possible. Thank you this week to Futurist Tracy Follows. If you would like advice on your personal finance issues, you can write to me at pf@thenationalnews.com. And remember, PF stands for personal finance. Please do subscribe to Pocketful of Dirhams on your favorite podcasting app to receive updates. And also leave us a review so we know what you think. This episode was produced by Dua Farid and Arthur Edison. And I've been your host. Felicity Glover.